0: Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: Our speaker this morning is a native of California and a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph in the United States. After his ordination to the priesthood, Father Ezra Sullivan went to Rome, where he now serves as professor of moral theology and psychology at the University of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, commonly known as the Angelicum. He has published numerous scholarly articles on bioethics, theology, and Catholic history, and is a recent author of two books on the Thomistic account of habits, which were the inspiration for the talk today and next week. Please welcome this morning, Father Ezra Sullivan.
2: Thank you, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be here and um, I'm glad to meet all of you through the web. Let's begin with a prayer. Saint Joseph, pray for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you turned on your computer. This was almost certainly not the first time you did so. But if you can remember the first time you ever encountered a computer, or perhaps the first time you ever picked up a cell phone, what a strange device that was to encounter this screen and all these different options. It may be difficult to even remember that first time for some people, because now you've used it so often, you turn it on, you know exactly what to do. You know how to use the mouse, you know how to arrange all the things on your screen. You can click through, at least in a basic way. What's interesting to think about is that this interior understanding you have of how you use your computer is just one instance of many throughout your day that is going to be influenced by your habits. Research shows that up to one-third of your daily behaviors are caused by your habits. How you work, what you do at your work, how you interact with people, what you say. Do you say hello when people ask you how you're doing? Do you respond with your sort of typical response? How you travel, your relaxation, what you do before bedtime, how many times you brush your teeth, or if you don't. All of this shows us that habits are throughout our lives, even though often we're not aware of the first time you began to brush your teeth, or if it was traumatic, you know. We commonly say things such as, I have a bad habit of biting my nails. Or we might wonder, how do I improve my study habits? And of course, during Lent, we may ask ourselves, well, what habits do I want to improve? Habits are present throughout our life, from the seemingly inconsequential moments to these things that have eternal effects. There was a debate in the 20th century about whether habits are things that happen from outside of us, things that as it were, impose themselves upon us, a kind of automatic behavior, or whether habits in their truest sense are things we choose and therefore are reflective of our deeper commitments and our interests. The answer is that, well, both perspectives are true. On the one hand, we perform many actions out of habituation. And in fact, modern technologists, when they made the cell phone, they made it in such a way as to make it as habituating as possible. They, of course, they want us to continually scroll through Facebook. They want us to use those apps for as much time as possible. They want our attention. So this attention economy was built upon the psychology of habits. This is very intentional. And so these designers, they use this understanding of our habituation in order to make us more attracted to their products. Of course, the technologists who designed this know this very well. And that's why people like Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, wouldn't allow his children to use the products that he sold. It's kind of like a drug dealer, allowing other people to use the products, but not himself. Now, on the other hand, we know that in some way, our habits actually reflect not just how we've been influenced, say by technology or by circumstances, but also that they show how we have shaped ourselves. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus increased in wisdom in the sight of God and man. Although our Lord is God incarnate, he has the perfection of divinity. Nevertheless, in his human nature, our Lord was able to increase in wisdom. And theologians have discussed what this meant. But in the sum of it, we can say our Lord had habits that he increased through his own action. Of course, united with the Holy Spirit, infused with divine light, connected with, well, the Son of God, who he was in union with the Father. Nevertheless, he increased in wisdom. And likewise, Judas, well, he didn't start out as the betrayer. He started out as another disciple. And so we can say his change from becoming a disciple to turning into this twisted version, this betrayer of our Lord, the one who goes out to the Pharisees in order to find a price for our Lord's head. This happened moment by moment, and eventually, well, through his bad habits, through his loss of faith, he then becomes this wicked man. And so habits then are existing both in terms of What is imposed upon us sometimes by technology or circumstances, but in a deeper way, we can say it shows our deepest commitments, shows our truest selves. A habit, one might say, is a mirror of what we are in this present moment, but it's also an account of what we were, and it's a prophecy of what we will be, unless with God's grace we change. What made Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, able to write an average of nearly 12 and a half pages of dense theology every single day, all year long, for years? Well, it was his habits. What made St. Faustina capable of enduring enormous pains, misunderstanding from her community, to help her to pray continuously for the mercy of God? It was her habits. What makes an alcoholic return to the bottle? even after losing his family, his money, his dignity? What makes a person gossip about her friends and waste time scrolling through pictures of food without satisfaction? What makes a person steal from a local shop time and time again without compunction? Habit, habit, habit. The things that we do once, we'll most likely do again. The things that we do twice, well, it's even more likely we'll do it a third time. To understand how this works, we need to understand biology, philosophy, and a theology regarding our human action and ultimately how these actions when repeated start to shape us. Fortunately, we have a guide. St. Thomas Aquinas in his treatise on habits and his Summa Theologiae is one of his greatest and most unique contributions to Catholic ethics. There's no other great Catholic writer who has written on habits as much as Aquinas has. Not St. Augustine as great as he is with his confessions. Not St. John Chrysostom in the East with all of his wonderful works covering so many different areas. Not St. Bonaventure, the Franciscan saint and and bishop. Not Scotus, not Robert Bellarmine, not St. Alphonsus Liguori. I would challenge anybody to try to, to apply one church father, one medieval scholastic, or even one modern who wrote about habits as Aquinas did. And yet if habits are all throughout our lives, Why was this so neglected? Well, there are all sorts of historical reasons for this, but one of them, frankly, is just that, well, the idea of habituation comes from the philosophy of that ancient Greek, Aristotle, and Aquinas was more willing to learn from that pagan Greek than many others were. So we'll follow Aquinas. His rich exposition of the nature and growth of habits has typically been neglected even by those who follow him. So not only is he rare among the rare in writing about this, even his followers, well, they prefer flashier things such as sin, punishment. They like to talk about complex puzzles regarding human action or, say, politically weaponizable issues such as natural law. A handful of scholarly references might talk about Aquinas here and there on habits, but few have focused on habits at length. What's astonishing, actually, in our day is the people who talk about habits the most are the people who want to be, well, most helpful. You'll find all sorts of self-help books that discuss this. One of the most popular books on this topic is called Atomic Habits. And you can look it up. I recommend it. It's a pretty good book as far as it goes. It's sold hundreds of thousands of copies, showing that many people want to know, how do I change my life? Why do I do these things over again? Perhaps habits are a clue. And I agree. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the modern insight and unite it with ancient wisdom, and I'm going to try to help you to understand, well, what are they, how do they affect you, and most importantly, how do you develop good ones with the grace of God? Let's start out with the basics. What is a habit? Following Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas says that a habit, in its most general sense, is a disposition of the soul, whereby... What is disposed is disposed with regard to, well, what is good or bad according to our nature. So let's just break that down. It's a disposition. It's an inclination. It's an interior urge to do something over and over again. And we notice that the way to understand this disposition, the way to measure it, is not according to, well, counting how many times we perform that action, but more it's according to our nature. What does this disposition do to me as a human being? How does it affect me with my ability to know and love my emotions, my memory, my imagination? How is this habit affecting my interior life? Notice that it's a stable inclination. It impels us to respond. A habit is quite different from something like, say, a startle when you hear a loud noise. The wind blows and slams the door shut. You respond. We can say, well, that's your responsive instinct. But a habit is something that comes to you that over time through your repetition. And so this stable inclination is more than a mere instinct. We can say that it's kind of like a secondary instinct that you've developed through your own action. You see, through your powers, you can actually develop something that is quasi-automatic, something that has a tendency to reproduce itself. Habitual responses can be useful, of course, in the accomplishment of your own aims. Often, habits help you to, well, focus your attention so you can focus on this one thing while you have a sort of automatic process running on the other side. Habits can exist on a number of different levels in our life. And so I'm going to walk through just a few examples of how habits operate before we get into the details of what makes habits tick. So let's consider, for example, how you learn to walk. Although walking is practically natural to us because, well, we're upright creatures. We are, as one person said, featherless bipeds. Well, nevertheless, we notice that, well, children have to learn how to walk, right? Think of the times when perhaps you've held the hands of a toddler just learning how to walk, and then they take a step and a step, and they're holding on to you, and then they may teeter back and forth, maybe ready to fall. And then, of course, there's always that exciting moment where the baby is across from you in a room and you beckon the baby to come. And then they take a step and they look around. They take another step and they're doing it on their own. Once this motor skill has been fully inculcated through repetition, a person will retain this habit of walking throughout their lives. It's very rare that somebody forgets how to walk. You can lose your energy, you can be injured, right? You can have difficulty walking, but the but the ability to walk once you learn it remains with you. And of course, once you learn how, then it frees you up to perform all sorts of other simultaneous tasks, such as well, navigating with a map in the woods, talking with a friend, you can drink while you walk, all sorts of things. All right, now let's consider a more uh, complex kind of action such as learning to write. Children can pick up the basics of a spoken language without conscious practice. They just they hear the words, they repeat them. Maybe they're corrected a little bit, but more or less it just happens quasi-automatically. But writing is a skill that requires attention. It requires the cooperation of the child who learns it. You have to show them how to write on a page. And sometimes you'll have the, the little dotted lines and they try to write in between those on, on a page. Now, some children need stronger rewards for writing or punishments to develop this disposition to string words together, then string sentences together. And we say, though, that once again, once this skill is ingrained, well, then you're freer to communicate more effectively. By learning how to write, you now have this skill that enables you to encounter other people and their ideas, and you're now able to communicate yourself. All right, so you can learn to walk, you can learn to write. How about driving a car? Here in Europe, I've been astonished to find that um, actually many Europeans don't know how to drive. You know, this is something that is perhaps both a gift and a curse for America. <laughs> we have cities made for roads, often not people. But this mechanical skill of driving, this too requires a conscious choice for someone. Typically, you have to be past childhood to have the the awareness and the judgment, the ability to drive. This task of driving at first requires a person's entire commitment. You you don't want them thinking of other things. Now, once they do this, though, then once again, they are able to, as it were, do other things while they drive. Every commuter knows how they're always tempted to text. They're tempted to listen to music or even to talk on the phone or something like that. So once you drive a car as this stable disposition, now you have it within you and you can call it up when you want. Now, the final level, which itself has, as it were, almost infinite variations, is ethical action. When you learn how to pray, when you learn to commune with God, you can say, well, on one level, it's like learning how to speak. You learn the words of the creed. You memorize your responses during sacred liturgy. But deeper than that, you actually learn how to will yourself to be united with God. The definition of prayer is to raise your mind and heart to God. This is what St. John of Damascus said. And, and this is something that means it's, it's an act of your will. Now, it's also an act of grace. God is helping to move you to pray. And so it's a cooperation with divine grace where God is always opening yourself to the grace that wants to be united with him. So then once you have this grace of prayer and this action, this habit of prayer, then you hardly need to think about it. You go into Holy Mass and the context of it helps these habits of prayer to start to enact themselves, as it were. You can more easily set aside these distractions. And of course, this is what you're trying to do, right? If you come in with family and the kids are acting up and so on, You want to calm them down so that you can once again enter into this great stream of prayer and participate in God's interior life. So, this shows us then that habits can exist on all these different levels and that they can be enacted by your circumstances, but it also requires something from us. So, let's let's look at um, our first slide and start once again with what is a habit. Here we have something very simple. A and B. A, we can say is called the antecedent. It's that which precedes B, a behavior. Every behavior has a kind of a goal to it. It's, it's like this arrow. It has a point and it will end or terminate in that goal. And so when we're considering different kinds of habits, we can say, well, for instance, the antecedent A is uh, being in mass. And then the B will be the behavior that you perform. And of course, the B can be the words that you say, or it can be the interior prayer that you that you say. And so this is how we understand the beginnings of any kind of behavior. Light shines and a chicken pecks on a keyboard. <laughs> there were there were, I saw this video of um, a fellow who had taught a chicken to peck on different keys as they lit up. And so, of course, each time the chicken pecks, it gets a little treat. And if it pecks them in order, then it's going to peck you know, a song like the Star Spangled Banner. Now, this is how it's going to be actually in some way for all of us, is that we are going to be actuated. Our habits will start to be actuated by some kind of antecedent. Our typical behavior is often preceded by this, this earlier trigger. We can say, you know, just think about a trigger on a gun for a second. It's that which sets into motion a bullet's flight. So the first thing I would recommend for you in your self-knowledge regarding your habits is simply to notice circumstances in your life that set off a habitual behavior. Perhaps you hear a song and it makes you think of your high school days. Or maybe you hear a bell at the beginning of mass and you stand. You don't even think about it. Or perhaps your spouse talks with you and you sigh and you make a face. All of these are going to, we say, oh, I was triggered. But the fact is that triggers don't compel us to perform these behaviors. For instance, you can hear a song and it's so powerful. And the the moment that you're in is so powerful, it displaces old memories. You hear a bell at mass, but you don't want to stand. You're angry. You don't want to cooperate, but you showed up anyway. So the bell rings and you refuse. Or maybe your spouse talks to you, you're in public, and you smile in a friendly way because you know other people are watching. So what it shows then is that we have control of our habits, even though often we allow them to control us. So what this shows us then is that habits are partly outside of our control and they're partly inside of our control. And what we want to do then is to start to think about ourselves and what sets off Our habitual behavior. Because once again, a habit is a stable inclination that urges us to respond to a stimulus in some regular way. And this is what we call the habit loop. And this is going to be in slide number two. So here we have A, the antecedent, a stimulus, which is often called the trigger. And that's going to lead to B, this external observable behavior. And then we're going to have C, which is the consequence, the result of the behavior. Now, in order to develop a habit consciously or to change a habit, what you want to do is to focus on one of these elements and perhaps all of them within this habit loop. So, for instance, you can look at the antecedent. You can focus on things that seem to trigger a certain kind of behavior within you. You say, why is it that I always sigh and make a face when my spouse wants to talk to me? You say, "Well, it's them, it's because of the way they approach me." Well, okay, you can't change your spouse. We we all know that. You can change yourself, though. And you can say to yourself, "Next time this trigger occurs, this is what I'm going to do. Instead of the behavior of sighing and moping around, I'm consciously going to try to be patient. I'm going to try to give them an authentic smile." So now I've changed how a Leads to B. And I'm I'm saying I can't change A, but I can change my behavior. Or let's suppose you want to focus on your behavior. And you say something like, Well, you know, there's some occasions in which I can't change the antecedent. We we discussed that. I can change my behavior, or I can change my consequent. I can change what how I'm going to respond to my own behavior. Now, for instance, let's suppose that you have, you know, this, this bad habit of using, um, I, I was talking with somebody once and they told me that they have a tendency to use bad language and they don't know what triggers it, they just happen to do it all the time. So, okay, well, we can't change the antecedent right now. The B, the behaviors thing, they're trying to change, so what do they do? Well, sometimes if you focus on the consequence, the C, then you can actually start to change. So, for instance... I know someone who, you know, this, this person who's trying to change their using bad language, they said, well, whenever I use bad language, I'm going to put money into my bad language jar. Okay. You know, and, and that was for them, like a way to remind themselves, one, how often are they doing this? And then, <laughs> and then like, well, I don't like to give the money. And then they're going to give the money to a good cause. And, you know, she told me that her bad language jar filled up really fast. <laughs> But let's th- let's think about something a positive behavior that you can do by thinking about these elements of the habit loop. St Benedict, I love to use this example. St Benedict decided to use the trigger as it were of walking through doorways in order to learn how to pray. Our Lord says in the gospel of St Luke, pray always and do not lose heart. But how do you do it? So this master of monks decided that whenever he walked through a doorway, that would be the antecedent, A, that leads to the behavior, B, of prayer. And then what he wanted was the C, the consequent of greater union with God. This kind of habit loop is something that's very simple, and at first you have to really pay attention to it. Am I walking through a doorway? What am I doing? And then pretty soon, though, it starts to become more and more regular. And it helps you to begin to pray always. I have a loop came in handy a number of different times. I give the example on the radio about a man who came to me who said that he was always yelling at his wife and children when he would come home from work. This is slide number four. I asked him first. I said, "Okay, well, what are the triggers? What are the antecedents that set off your bad behavior? A messy wife. Our messy house, the dis, disobedient children, and after a th- thoughtful pause, he said that well, yeah. As soon as he steps, you know, home into into his house, he has demands from the children. He has random thoughts, these information about house repairs. Four kids are running around, they're shouting and whining, and they're asking for attention. And um, he said, every day when I'm come home from the office, it feels like I'm storming the shores of Normandy after having swum the English Channel. He says, and this is why some guys go to the bar first. Like, okay, well, let's not make that the new behavior. We're trying to get rid of yelling, but let's do something else. So instead I said, well, how about um, what you need to do is to replace your behavior with a different one because of a different antecedent. So how about instead of going home first from your work, you sit in your car for just a few minutes, just one or two minutes, you sit in the car, you say a little prayer. You thank God for your day, and you think about the beginning of your day. So now your antecedent is praying in your car. That creates this new behavior. You're more calm. You're more cheerful. And so then the consequent is when you step foot into the house, you're already calm and cheerful. And this then is going to help you to endure whatever is happening with the family. And so in this way, I said that studies have shown that people who try to focus simply on not performing a behavior, they typically fail because to force yourself not to do something bad is very, very difficult, especially when you're habituated to it. What's better then is to create a new positive behavior that replaces the old behavior. Instead of gritting his teeth and saying, I'm not going to yell at my children, Ugh. instead of doing that, what he's doing is he's already setting himself up with a situation where he has this grace of calm, this peace, and this prayer, and he brings that into the new situation. And fortunately, it had good results. I'll give you another example. And this one is going to be related to someone who came to me who had trouble with their eating habits. And this is very, of course, common, I think, in the Western world where we have an abundance of food, especially with a lot of sugar and oil and such. So in order to eliminate his overeating, Frank analyzed his behavior in terms of this A, B, C, antecedent behavior consequence. And here are some of the results of his self-observations. He noticed that the behavior of overeating seemed often not to be the problem. You know, his breakfast was pretty small, just have a little coffee, maybe a pastry. His lunch was pretty reasonable. He wouldn't overeat at lunch. And even at dinner, he cooked for himself. It was moderate. And, you know, he tried to eat kind of healthy, maybe throw in a salad, maybe, you know, chicken breast, something like that. But what he did notice is that he would munch and he would snack after dinner for hours into the night. And so then we're talking and I said, well, okay, if this is kind of like the the problematic side of your eating is at nighttime, you're kind of snacking for a few hours, then what do you think triggers this this snacking? You know, what it is, what is it that leads you to do this? And he said, well, I don't think it's because I'm hungry. Like, that's not the issue. He says he usually had these, you know, artery clogging nibbles when he's reclining on the couch and he's watching TV. So he decided that watching TV was the main trigger for his binge eating. And then he noticed, of course, that the consequent, the reward that he felt was that he looked forward to TV so he could eat those snacks. (laughs) And so now it kind of reverses, right? So, of course, whenever we feel a reward for performing a behavior, in other words, we feel that it's good, we enjoy it, we're going to be inclined to perform that behavior again. Now, he had a few options for addressing this behavior of overeating. On the one hand, he could try to eliminate this habitual behavior. To avoid the triggers and frank said you know honestly i don't have a lot to do in the evening i'm unwilling to give up tv so okay he's not going to give up the trigger of tv all right consequent another way to eliminate a habitual behavior is to substitute one reward for another so contentment from eating seemed to be this desired reward so frank tried eating healthier snacks instead of having chips and a beer. For a while, he tried to eat carrots. Then, of course, carrots on their own aren't very fun. And so he doused them in ranch sauce. And that still didn't satisfy his desire for the fat and salt that you get from the other kinds of food. So after five days, he returned to potato chips. Now, another thing to do is if you can't, if you can't conquer the antecedent and the consequence, this you know sort of reward center is still not being satisfied, well, then you can try to think about the behavior itself. So to make a behavior more acceptable, one can try to alter the most problematic parts of the behavior. Brink said he didn't think he had enough willpower to stop eating these fattening foods, but what he did try to do was to count his calories throughout the day. And he thought, well, if I eat a little bit less breakfast, and I eat a little bit less lunch and a little bit less dinner. Then by the time snack time comes along, that I can like fill up the rest. So he had a little food journal and he'd write down his overall caloric intake. And I remember being with him one time at lunch and he's asking the waitress, and he's like, uh, how many calories do you think are in the salad? And you know, and this is like a local restaurant, you know, they 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 have no idea. She just made up a number. She's like, thousand and he goes really there's a lot of chicken she's like two (laughs) thousand so already there's some problems now of course at first this technique helped frank to reduce his overall caloric intake because he's just paying attention to it even if there's some things you know fudging around the edges but the problem is that you know it's inconvenient and in the long run he he himself didn't have enough discipline to keep up this food journal, and to really be an invested in it. And, and, and of course, it's really artificial. Soon he gave the, the technique at all, and he started eating even more. And he's asking himself, why am I doing this? Where, where's my life going? What is the point of this behavior? And this is going to help us to see, as in slide number five, that habit loops have a goal. Habit loops have an end. Some behavioral psychologists argue that these deep questions, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? How does this fit into my life? What's the point? They say, that doesn't matter. Just focus on the A, B, and the C. But we notice that actually in our lives, and you know, for Frank, that's often not the case. In order to change our behaviors, we have to do more than we do if we're just going to, say, adjust the behavior of a chicken or of a dog. Ivan Pavlov famously taught dogs to salivate when they heard a bell ring. And, you know, well, we're not dogs. We have to ask ourselves these deeper questions about life. What am I looking for? What good do I desire? And so this is where we consider what St. Thomas Aquinas calls the end. And there are some ends that are very close to us. So what is the end of your habit? In other words, what is this habit aiming at? Now, we're going to notice by considering this, we'll take into account another person. We'll add another character to this story. Frank knew that he overate. He didn't know precisely why. It took a great deal of honest and painful searching in himself to discover these deeper motivations. You see, the the problem is that Frank had not articulated to himself that the goal was to ease his sadness. He felt lonely. He knew that he was single. He didn't have many friends. Most of them were married. And somehow these fattery and sugary foods gave him a temporary feeling of satisfaction and fullness. You see, the pleasure of the food slightly eased this ache of an empty apartment. Now, with deeper insight to his intentions, Frank was able to see that although he couldn't easily relieve his loneliness, he recognized that this comfort food was ultimately unsatisfying. What he really wanted was companionship and no food is a substitute for that. Now let's compare Frank and, and his issue with another person named Bobby. Bobby was married. His wife suggested that he was eating too much and She said, well, you need to think about what you're eating. And so he started thinking about, right, his behavior. He started making an account of it. And he knew that he had a little candy drawer at his desk at work. And he'd dive into that candy drawer. And he's thinking to himself, well, why am I doing that? Well, in Bobby's case, it was, in a way, a lot more simple and easier to handle than Frank. Because for Bobby, he was doing it because he felt tired. (laughs) He wasn't getting a lot of sleep. They had a newborn. And he was up all night. And, you know, well, what happens when you're up all night? You don't have a lot of sleep. Well, you need a little bit of energy to pick you up in the middle of your work day. So he was using this food as basically a way to raise his energy level to be able to focus a little bit more. And then it became kind of a sugar addiction because you have a sugar spike and then you have a sugar crash. And so then what he kept trying to do is have little bits of sugar throughout the day, which meant he's just eating a lot of sugar overall. So once Bobby realized that he didn't have to go through this existential question as to where's my life going? Why am I lonely? Why didn't I ever get married? What happened to my girlfriend? All the things that Frank's thinking about, those are not on the, on the horizon for Bobby. For Bobby, it's I'm not sleeping enough. What can I do to sleep better? And is this going to last forever? Is my baby always going to scream? Or you know, are we eventually going to be able to, to deal with this problem? So in this case, Bobby's marital status helped him to enter into his situation more carefully. So here's what we're going to add to the notion of the habit loop. Now, this is going to be rather complex, and this is going to be the fifth slide, I believe. So notice then that we have the object. Objectively, what are you doing? And for both Bobby and Frank, it's overeating. But notice that we have end. Well, the end of, you know, end number one for Frank was to feel satisfied. End number two for Frank was to relieve his loneliness. And then notice that whenever he felt at least a little bit less lonely, whenever he ate, it reinforced the antecedent. He wanted to go back to TV. He wanted to go back to pulling out the chips and the beer. And then it it reinforced this habit loop. But then notice for Bobby, all he had to do in his case was just change the circumstances. The object was to eat too much. His end was to have a little bit more energy. And his ultimate end in, in having more energy was to have, help his family. So all Bobby had to do then, in his case, was just change everything that surrounded the habit loop. The A, the antecedent, he changed that a little bit. And he said, honey, you know, for a little while, just for a week or two, do you mind That I don't wake up in the middle of the night to help the baby. I really need to get this sleep. And and what that did was that broke his bad habit. It gave Bobby just enough self awareness, and it gave him just enough energy because he's getting a little bit more sleep. That he was able to then to stop the habit loop of addiction to food, and then to control that, and that helped him get on a better path. So then later on, even though he still wasn't fully sleeping well, he had broken the habit and that loop that was continually cycling through this excessive use of sugar. Okay, so so I think it's important then to notice the objective element of our habit, objectively what are you doing? And sometimes people just kind of ignore that, that element of their behavior. And so it's important then to for us to try to get help with our objective behavior. If you don't have a spouse, sometimes that is why people will keep diaries. This is why often psychologists recommend that uh, one of the best ways, actually, for you to overcome whatever it is that's plaguing you in life is to keep a diary every day. Don't you know over dramatize it, and don't think that this is you know a masterpiece. This is going to be the second confessions that is going to be a bestseller for three millennia. But um, but just imagine that this helps you to know yourself better. Real change. Studies show that. Utilizing the habit loop, understanding it well, it it can help people achieve their goals for self-change between sixty cent, sixty six percent, and eighty four percent of the time. Simply knowing what your behavior is triggered by, knowing what rewards you're feeling, and knowing how those rewards start to reinforce your behavior. Simply knowing that, and then addressing one part or another, that is often the beginning of changing your life. Now, of course, we have to say that without God's grace, perhaps the only behaviors you'll be able to change are, well, simple behaviors. And you may not be able to gain the virtue, ultimately, that's going to bring you to happiness. Because often, if we have one kind of bad habit in our lives, if we have one addiction, and we eliminate that without grace, without coming closer to God and loving him more, well, then we'll just substitute one bad habit another. It's a very frequent experience of people who have addictions, perhaps they've had an alcohol addiction and they're finally able to to overcome that, that then unfortunately they may move into another kind of addiction, perhaps cigarettes, perhaps drugs, or perhaps just what they call an addiction to a person where they're overly attached to that person and they're not able to live in a kind of a happy, healthy way. So in order to have grace In order truly to develop sanctity, you need to know yourself, and the habit loop is a great model to help you to do that, but you have to go deeper. You have to start to invite Christ into your objective behavior. This is why the psalmist says, Lord, know me. Help me to know myself just as I know myself so you know me. And the psalmist invites God to seek him and to know all the parts of his life. Lord, why do I feel satisfied with this increased behavior? Why is it that the garden of my soul is sprouting up in these weeds constantly? What seeds were planted long ago in my life, whether by my choice or by somebody else's influence? Lord, pluck those seeds up. Let the seed of grace and of virtue grow up in my life so that one day it can be a harvest worthy of you. When we're united with God, when we invite him to give us these new habits, he can pour into our soul the graces to help us to live according to our baptism, so that these habits of faith, hope, and love, the habit of grace, can start to then increase in our lives and help us then to grow forth and not just in small ways adjust our behavior, but will actually help us to become a new creature in Christ. And that's going to be the topic of our next talk. So I'll just leave us with one thought. Augustine says that we are transformed into what we love because what we love becomes a habit that shapes who we are. The more you love earthly things, the more you become earthly. The more you love human things, well, the more human you can be. But the more you love God, the more divine you become. And these are the habits that we want to last, not only in this life, but for eternity. God bless you.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Ezra. That was uh, an excellent start. If if those of you out there who were with us this morning uh, want to dive more deeply into this, well, of course, join us for part two of this series. I'm really looking forward to seeing, Father, how you build on this natural foundation and apply it to these supernatural virtues and actions that make up so much of our lives as Christians. So definitely join us next week for that, but then also uh, check out Father's two books on the subject that were uh, published recently, Habits and Holiness, as well as Heroic Habits. Father, could you just, in 30 seconds, what's the difference between the two if people want to just purchase one?
2: The overall difference is that the longer one goes into a lot more detail, and it actually has some practical tips. I have like the Ten Commandments of Learning Habits. It's only in that book. There are a lot of Latin footnotes. It also goes through all the different virtues in great detail. And so each virtue, it also shows you how to grow in faith, how to grow in hope, how to grow in love, and what does merit mean. The shorter book focuses more actually on our thoughts and how do our thoughts change us. It does provide a little bit about virtue, but it's mostly targeted at providing the broadest, thin overview.
1: That's great. And correct me if I'm wrong, Heroic Habits is the shorter one, and then Habits and Holiness is the longer one. Correct. Correct. Yep. So, so this, is, yeah. this, is the, uh, this is the longer one.
2: I actually don't have a copy of the shorter one. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's all up in here for you. It's, it's <laughs> habituated. Yes. <laughs> well, great. Thank you. Without further ado, Father, here is the first question that, that we'll take that came in. Lauren asks, many spiritual directors or confessors will say things like, don't pay too much attention to yourself. Look outward to Jesus. How can we find a good balance between introspection and seeking to understand our motivations while looking outward toward Jesus as we develop habits?
2: Yeah, great question. So our Lord says, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And and I think that illustrates precisely this advice. Namely, on the one hand, we have to have self-knowledge. And in fact, without self-knowledge, you won't make a lot of progress. And at the same time, you don't want... Narcissistic self-knowledge, or say, scrupulosity and anxiety about yourself, and so what a lot of spiritual writers will recommend is that we make an examination of conscience at least once a week, and that that may be recorded, or at least if you can remember yourself pretty well, then you keep that in mind. And those those elements in your examination of conscience should include not only the the sins that you perform but also the virtues that you want to have. And that's going to help to balance out your self-growth because people who get too much down on themselves are not thinking about the positive elements of where I want to go. So by focusing on the virtues, that will also help you to focus on Christ and your neighbor because you need to be focusing on how do I love my neighbor? How do I demonstrate to my neighbor my, you know, my justice, my desire for their good, for their salvation. And so by focusing on the virtues, then that helps you to see, okay, I have these vices underneath, but those aren't, those don't define me. And my self-definition isn't limited by my bad actions. And so then it's putting this higher realm, but we do need an examination of conscience, at least before confession, but I recommend at least weekly.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Let's take a question from here on screen. Paula, go ahead and uh, take yourself off of me and ask your question there.
2: Hi, Father Sullivan. At the end there, you were talking about God's grace and you mentioned something about without God's grace and not being able to change. And I kind of missed that. And I was wondering, you were talking, you said something about without God's grace and um, change about replacing one habit with another. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that again. Yeah. So essentially, with our own efforts, we can achieve, you know, some small goals. And often it's behavior adjustment. And sometimes you can even gain a new entire goal, you know, like people who without God can for a little while say they, they go off of an addiction. But even in the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, they recognize they need the higher power. And then as Catholics, we know that for us to truly become righteous, to become saints, then we have to have God's grace. There's only so much we can do on our own with our own efforts. And so that's why, although the first, this first talk was mostly focused on you know, the natural psychology of how did the habit loop work, what I'm trying to do is introduce the notion that we want to bring God into that understanding as well. So, so we don't want to neglect grace, but rather have God in mind whenever we're trying to have any kind of behavior motivation.
1: Thank you, Father. We'll take another question that came in here. This one came in anonymously. This person asks, if you have any word of encouragement or advice on some bad habits that perhaps we won't be able to overcome in our earthly life. Uh, this person's reminded of St. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah, so Saint Paul, what was the thorn in the flesh? This is discussed by many theologians. There are at least 15 different possibilities that I that I found when I was discovering, you know, the, the commentaries on this verse. It seems to me it's most likely that St. Paul's thorn in the flesh was actually his angry disposition, because when Aquinas discusses what are like the bad behaviors that are associated with anger, St. Paul has all of them. It includes name calling. He, um, he says, oh, you stupid Galatians, It's you know, having fights with friends. Well, actually, he, he broke up, if you remember, in the Acts of the Apostles, it says that St. Paul went one way and St. Barnabas went the other way. And then there's also this issue of uh, angry people have a tendency to be too violent. And St. Paul, of course, you know, before he was converted, he stoned people to death. And anyway, so we can go through the list. Like, okay, so it's likely it's anger, maybe not, but it seems like a good candidate. Now it's true that St. Paul could never fully change his temperament. We are who we are, right? You know, St. Paul wasn't Irish, but maybe he had some Irish like tendencies. And so you say, there's some parts of me I cannot change. However, I can change my behavior with God's grace. And even if you can never fully eliminate some urges or some some uh, tendencies as in habits that way, nevertheless, God will help you to adjust your urge in such a way that it no longer overcomes your life. So I would just encourage you to not despair that there are vices you cannot overcome. God will overcome the vices in your life if you continually open yourself humbly to his grace, ask our lady to help you. Now, maybe you can't eliminate your desire for that vice. And simply having that desire though is not in itself a sin. If you if you distance yourself and you say, Lord, I don't want to commit this sin. In fact, I don't even want this desire. This is what St. Augustine said: he said, Lord, help me to change not only my behavior, help me to change my love. And so, so that ultimately is going to be the way that we come to deal with the tendencies that seem to be quasi permanent or seem to be part of our identity. Is to say, well, maybe I can never fully illuminate this urge. However, with God's grace, I can use that energy from the urge and transform it into something beautiful for God.
1: Well, thank you, Father. That's a very helpful answer to that question. We'll take another one on screen here. Tim, go ahead and ask your question. Thank
0: you, thank you, Father. When I examine some destructive habits in my life, my natural response is not to invite Christ into that moment for healing. It instead usually is, I have to defeat this habit on my own, and then I will be worthy to present myself to the Lord. Do you have any advice on overcoming the shame that leads us to isolating from God And to invite Christ and God into our lives to
2: heal these behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And you know, thank you, Tim, for for sharing that. I would say one of the things is to think about that habit loop in terms of the end. Because what you're doing is you're saying, what good do, do I desire? What what is it about that habitual behavior feels satisfying to me? And there's always a good. Right, so we're we're it may be a sinful habit, and certainly we we want to acknowledge that we're not denying that there can be a destructive habit. But but to ask yourself, what good do I want? When you know what good you're looking for, you then say, well, Lord, I want this good. It's a good thing that I want, and maybe I'm looking for this good thing in a bad way, or maybe I'm I'm looking too much for that good, or whatever it is. But that actually helps you to say to God, you gave me this desire for the good. Right. So some people, you know, like the example of Frank that I was talking about in his loneliness, it's a good thing to desire companionship. It's a good thing to want friends. Absolutely. And so now you can bring that and say, Lord, I wish I had that good. That's not available to me right now. I don't know why. But now now you're united with God in recognizing the heart of that destructive habit. And so it's still saying I need to go to confession if I perform this thing and I, I acknowledge that it's disordered but but acknowledging your own good desire is an extremely important moment and and not being ashamed of the fact that you have a good desire.
1: Thank you, Father. Let's take one more question before we close for today on this uh, Saturday morning. Again, thank you, Father, for joining us from Rome. This is uh, just it's such a fantastic opportunity to connect Catholics especially during Lent at the beginning here. So, I'm going to end with a somewhat practical question because we can maybe take this advice with us tomorrow when we go to Mass. Lawrence and Anne-Marie ask if you have any suggestions on how to avoid mind-wandering and distractions during Mass. I think that's a question that comes from all of us here.
2: Well, first, I say that to enter into Mass in a spirit of prayer, and um, not wait for the spirit of prayer to come somewhere, you know, after the gospel. So the key to entering into prayer is is to try to prepare yourself beforehand. And this means just like, you know, the example that I gave from the father going to his home and being distracted by his kids. For some people, maybe what you need to do when you enter into mass is you need to arrive early and you sit there and you're already praying when mass starts. Or if it's really difficult to arrive early and to pray, then in the middle of mass, then you can have something that's going to bring you back. So for instance, let's suppose that your mind has a tendency to wander. You may not be able to stop the wandering, right? So this is the behavior. But think about, you want a trigger that will remind you to pray. So if you're in a church that, say, has a crucifix up front, then you can tell yourself, when I start to notice myself wandering, I'm going to look at the crucifix, and that will remind me to pray. And so then it's like, okay, well, I may not be able to stop the wandering, but I do have a solution to the wandering when it happens. So so I gave you two two concrete suggestions. One, you arrive early, you're in a spirit of prayer, you try to continue throughout Mass. And then the other is when you do notice the, the negative behavior, then you have another way to recenter yourself very quickly.
1: Thank you, Father. That's uh, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for a lot of us is just having looked at this practical model of the loop and having a number of different options to attack a particular negative behavior. I think that's going to be something that uh, is really helpful for for all of us in the coming weeks, especially as we're trying to root out a lot of these here during Lent, uh, preparing for Easter. So thank you again for your time with us. Father, I would ask if you could please close us in prayer today.
2: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.